and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm pleased to welcome a new host, Dave Mason, to the program today. Dave is an associate professor at Rhodes College in Memphis, where he's the director of Asian Studies. He is also the editor of Ecumenica, Journal of Theater and Performance. He's the author of the books The Performative Ground of Religion and Theater, Brigham Young, Sovereign in America, in which he was a guest on Book Talk for, and Theater and Religion in Krishna's Stage. Dave will be speaking with Vanessa R. Sasson, a professor of religious studies at Marianopolis College in Quebec. She has a good deal of academic writing and editing under her belt, including the collection Little Buddhas, Children and Childhood in Buddhist Texts and Traditions, and the forthcoming Jewels, Jewelry, and Other Shiny Things in the Buddhist Imaginary. But today, she and Dave will be discussing her debut novel, Yashodara and the Buddha, which was recently published in the United States by Bloomsbury Academic. Thanks for joining us today to talk about this book that you've written about the Buddha, but not really the Buddha, right? About his wife. So your book confirms for us that, yes, indeed, the Buddha was married, but I think a lot of people aren't going to really know what the Buddha's story is at all. So at, at, at the risk maybe of undermining the premise of your book, which we'll get to in a second, what's the Buddha's story? Well, it's a great question, but their stories are actually intertwined. And we tend to spend a lot of time looking at him because he's the hero of the tradition. So he obviously deserves that attention. But he was, according to all the early sources that talk about his biography, make reference to him having a wife. And so she was there. And what's beautiful about it is that she was part of his story, not just in his last life, but Buddhists believe in reincarnation and Buddhist storytelling is a lot more vast than we might expect in the West. Storytelling in Indian traditions span lifetimes and they go far into the past and they go far into the future and they spread in all directions so that Indian storytelling is this kind of fabulously long and playful and expansive experience. And so the Buddha's story is not just in his last life when he becomes the Buddha. He has many lifetimes before that where he's working his way towards becoming the Buddha. And these stories of him in his past lives are all part of the tradition. People tell stories about him being reborn as a crocodile and being reborn as a monkey and having all of these experiences as he's moving his way through the long system of reincarnation. And whenever he's married, whether it's as a human or as a monkey, she's beside him. She's the one. So that they have many, many lifetimes together as partners, as married, as a couple. Their relationship changes depending on the past life story that you're reading, but she's there with him. It's not just his story. It's their story. So incarnation after incarnation, it's always her and it's always him. It's a pair. It is a pair and it's quite romantic when you think about that. I feel like Indian storytelling is way more romantic than anything we've ever figured out here in the West because they make it so much longer. So there's this sense of collective karma or of relationships that are bound over lifetimes, not just over immediate experience. And their relationship keeps returning. And it's not just with her. He has the same mother over and over and over again. He has the same arch enemy, right? The Devadatta is always showing up and he's always the bad guy. So there's perhaps an accusation of limited imagination, but I don't think that's what it is. I think that what you see here is this notion that we are linked for lifetimes together and that we continue through these relationships over and over and over again until we finish them. And in this context, they're finished when a weak awakening is achieved. So when he becomes the Buddha, the relationship is complete and there's no returning and same for her. But until then, he's bound in all of these relationships and people are bound to him and to each other. 
and they travel through time in this really poetic, beautiful, vast experience of time. But then in his human incarnation, the pairing gets sundered, doesn't it? Because he gets enlightened and she doesn't. Well, not right away. No, she doesn't. He leaves her. And that's what's devastating about the story is that after lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes of finding each other in their final lifetime, he walks away. And he walks away, not just he leaves her, he leaves her the day she gives birth to their son. It's tragedy of like such extraordinary, exquisite proportions. And her sense of loss is very profound. And it's that sense of loss that I was very attracted to. I wanted to engage and think about and write about was her experience of loss because it's, it's familiar. We all have loss and she has the most exquisite experience of it because for lifetimes she was with him. And then he leaves her and she's left behind. I mean, the story that anybody might know if they if they know anything about the Buddha is this later part of his human life when he has become enlightened and then he gathers followers and whatnot. And she's more or less left out of that, isn't she? Yeah. He leaves her the day that she gives birth. And if you look at the early poetry, it's really quite remarkable. What is created in a lot of the sources is this very parallel experience but very different. So the story of the Buddha, for the listeners who don't know, is that he's a prince and he grows up very isolated from the experience of suffering. His father has closed the doors on the palace to make sure that he doesn't get too contemplative. And so he's very spoiled. He gets everything he wants and he never experiences pain. And the king's idea was that if he protects his son from suffering, his son will never become contemplative. He'll just go take the throne and become king and enjoy royal life. But then on the day that she is in labor, he leaves the palace to explore. And so she goes into labor while he's out. And he has the experience of seeing old age and sickness and death. And that awareness of suffering is what catapults him out of the palace. He realizes suffering is so real. I can't stay anymore. I have to understand this suffering. I have to understand what I'm seeing. And so while he's seeing suffering, She's in the palace birthing, which is suffering, and it's dangerous, and it's bloody, and it's violent, and it could end in death. There's this parallel reality that's happening where she lives this experience, and he's contemplating it. And then when he comes home, the experience is finished, and she has given birth, and she's asleep with her son, and he's returned to a quiet palace. And that's when he decides, I have to go. And so They have parallel but divergent experiences. And so he leaves and she stays and she's left behind with her newborn son in a palace with her in-laws. Eventually, she's going to become awakened too. But that moment of waking up the next morning and discovering that her beloved husband, her husband that she has had for lifetimes, has left her when she's finally given birth after years of not conceiving is shattering, utterly shattering. This is what you chose to do with the Buddha story that everybody sort of knows in bits and pieces. I have a friend who told me that I have a tendency to pick at the scabs of Buddhism. And I think that's probably true, that this is a a painful scar tissue in the tradition, a really sad part of his story, very painful for her, and I needed to look at it. I didn't want to just gloss over it and say, oh, he had a wife and a newborn son and he left. I wanted to know what that felt like. Because yes, he's the heroic, amazing Buddha, but he broke everybody's heart. And it's not just her. Her life is shattered. But the king was expecting him to take over the kingdom. 
And so he's disappointed as subjects. He's disappointed as father. He's disappointed as stepmother who has raised him. Everybody expected something from him and he left them all to go pursue his dreams. And so we follow him and we're so inspired by him as he pursues his dreams. And that's very exciting. But the shattered remains when somebody pursues their dreams is also something to look at. And what's so amazing is that the literature looks at it. So many of the early poets and the storytellers, they took time to paint the picture of the loss that is left behind. So they don't just follow the Buddha into the forest galloping away. They follow him, but then they pause. And they'll create a scene where they tell the story of the suffering of the stepmother or the suffering of his wife. And so they take the time to notice the loss. And so by me writing a book where I notice the loss, I'm participating in a tradition and I'm not doing something actually as new as it seems. So the only thing that I've done that's different is I've told it in her voice. But we have 2,000 years of beautiful literature and poetry where poets and storytellers have tried to express what it feels like to be left behind. 2,000 years. How much material is behind the book that you wrote? So much. (laughs) There's so much research. So one of the things that I did, I wanted to write it as a novel, and I had a lot of fun writing it as a novel. It was difficult because I'm trained as a scholar. I've never written creatively before. So I created the novel At the beginning, I had the urge to put footnotes everywhere because I don't know how to write without footnoting everything I say and justifying everything that I do, but it stopped me from writing. So eventually I stopped the footnotes. I deleted them all. I just deleted them, which is shocking. And I wrote only when I finished writing, did I go back to my footnotes (laughs) and I created endnotes at the back of the book, not footnotes. So the reader has a clean experience. There's no footnotes in the book or endnotes. They're just notes. And so each chapter I explain In this scene, I'm inspired by this text. In this scene comes from this text. This scene I made up because I didn't find any text that does this, but I needed to link two scenes. So I explain all the different texts that I use, where they're from, and why I did what I did so that the reader can engage in the literature. Because otherwise, you're wondering as you're reading the book, is this real? Like, where is she getting all of this from? So I wanted to really help the reader walk through what is 2,000 years of Buddhist literature so that they can see why I did what I did. And there's a bibliography in the back as well so that they can find the text. But we really do have many texts that have given some attention to Yashodra, to the Buddha's wife, and have expressed the loss that I have followed in this book. Is there a particular subbody of this 2,000 years worth of literature that you particularly relied on or that particularly appealed to you or, or maybe was particularly attentive to Yasodara's life? Yeah, there were a few texts that really touched me. One is one of the earliest. This is the Buddha Charita, which is a first, second century Sanskrit poem. Very, very beautiful. And it's a poem about the Buddha's life. And it's a male poet who describes the Buddha's story, but he really stops when the Buddha leaves to express her loss and he gives her time in his poetry. And it's heartbreaking. You know, her anguish and her pain and her rage, he really expresses it and takes the time to notice her. So I was very moved by his poetry and very moved by him taking the time to do that 2,000 years ago. 
But then we see we have medieval Noari poetry, 13th century about Noari poetry from Nepal that's very beautiful, that's exclusively focused on her, that just tells her story. We have Sinhalese poetry, also medieval. They're songs of lament. And to this day, in certain rural areas in Sri Lanka, people sing her songs in funerals because she's the one who knows what loss feels like. So that has always touched me tremendously. And then there's an amazing Noari contemporary poem from the 20th century. I mean, the poet died a few years ago. It's called the Sugata Soraba. And it is so beautiful. And he really heightens the romantic aspects and her longing for him as a husband. And I, all of this poetry just really is remarkable and beautiful and soft and touching. And all of it produced by men. I was just going to ask that. Yes. This was something that really affected me was the, like, I had spent a lot of time thinking about misogyny and patriarchy in the tradition. I've looked at it. I've written about it. But then when I wrote this book, which felt like a very feminist thing to do, I was stopped in my tracks as I realized all these male poets took the time to be with her and to express what it felt like as a woman to be left behind. And that touched me tremendously to think of all of these men trying to imagine that. And you think they got it, all these men? I think they touched on something very real. Yeah, I really do. I mean, I don't know that that doesn't excuse patriarchy. It doesn't really matter. I, I'm so moved and I want to notice it and I want to say it, right, to recognize these poets' ability to be sensitive to these women's experiences. In your review of material for this book, are there any women speaking? I mean, maybe some of this was produced by women and we don't know it. Mm. There is some beautiful Dalit poetry. In India, there's a whole community of what are known as ex-Dalit Buddhists. These are the Dalit community are untouchables. Dalit is the contemporary term for it. And there's a huge community of these Dalit, these untouchable Hindu communities that have chosen to convert to Buddhism to escape the caste system. And so this has a long, complicated history with Ambedkar and it's a whole project for another conversation. But there is some poetry by ex-Dalit Buddhists. So these are very contemporary women who write poetry in her name. It's quite beautiful. Hmm. So there is, but it's very, very new. So nothing that I can identify from earlier times. Maybe we will discover that you know, Ashvagosha, who wrote the Buddha Charita, was actually a woman. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> I likely it's probably pretty small. <laughs> and I think it's quite beautiful that it's men who are taking the time to be sensitive to the women's experiences. There's some important space then for your voice in the telling of this story. I um, hope so. It's hard to put myself in their company. I don't think I deserve that. Nobody quite like Ashvagosha or Hridaya Chitadar. So I don't think I would be comfortable with being placed in that company. But I think there is room for women to try to figure out what this sounds like in their voices. And I think that's important. So then you mentioned that there are parts that you just made up because you couldn't find a text. What parts did you make up and, and why did you feel like you had some claim on making up some part of the story? Part of it was that for the story to continue and to go from A to B to C, there has to be scenes that link moments. And so a lot of this literature is written, you know, like there'll be a scene that'll be created and then you won't have like the whole story in the biographies, right? They'll give you clips. So I wanted to write a whole novel. 
I didn't want to just write a series of clips, which meant that I had to link scenes in a way that's not from the early literature always. So some of it's just for narrative continuity. And some of it was because I thought it was really missing. And so one scene that I had to think about for quite a while that I added, that's not really there, certainly not the way I created it. So the Buddha leaves the palace and he goes off to become the Buddha and she's left behind with her son. And many years later, he famously returns as the Buddha. So he's now the great awakened being. And everybody celebrates his return and everybody runs to the palace courtyard or to a grove, depending on which version of the story you go with. But everybody runs to go see him. And in the one where it happens in the palace, everyone goes but her. Yashodra will not go. And she looks over through a window to see him, but she will not go down. And she decides if he wants to see me, he'll have to come see me himself. And so she's the only one who does not go to him. And this was your invention. No, no, no. This is part of the early literature. Okay, okay. This is there. This is part of the tradition. So this is in a Tibetan tradition is that she refuses to go. And so she goes back to her room. It's almost as though she's defying him to come find her in her bedroom, which is what a husband does. And he does it, which is quite amazing. And so there you still feel the tension of that relationship because no man would enter a woman's bedchambers unless they have a right to do so. And so he kind of goes back to that relationship and he actually goes to her room to see her. And then she falls at his feet and she cries because she misses him so much. And so it's a very tense, beautiful, romantic, upsetting moment. So we have this scene. And then we also have another clip, depending on which text we're using, where we have her son, who's now about eight years old, who says, you know, I want to go meet my father. And she says, fine, go. It's a very famous line. She says, ask him about your inheritance. Like, what's going to happen to you? Is he back? Is he not back? Like, what's happening? Right? Is he supposed to be king? Who's going to be king now? So he goes, and we learn afterwards, and we don't have that scene of the conversation between. So that's one scene that's missing that I didn't write, is the scene between the Buddha and his son. So that's a beautiful scene to write eventually. I imagine it anyway, of the two talking to each other for the first time. But what is decided that we learn later is that to give him his inheritance, he will give him the teachings. So the inheritance is no longer the palace and all the gold. The inheritance is learning to reach awakening. And so he says, I'll take you to the forest. Then she is told somehow at some point that her son is leaving which is more heartache. So just as she settled down into the palace and she has gotten accustomed to living without her husband, now he's taking away her son. And so she really experiences a tremendous amount of loss. And to me, this is so much sadness. But what the tradition never does is tell us that they had that conversation. Like, did the Buddha ask her for her permission to take his son? Or does she not count enough that he can just take her without, like to me, that's an insane, so maybe it's much too contemporary of me, but where I stand today, I cannot imagine a father saying, well, okay, I'll take you to the forest. And then he just leaves. It doesn't make any sense to me. He must have talked to the mother. I can't understand that story any other way, but the tradition doesn't tell us that they talked and And I had to have them talk. You write the conversation in which he presents to her the idea that he's going to take yes. son to the forest. This conversation is joined with a moment where they step together off the balcony. That's all right? made up. Yeah. That's yours too. That's all made up. I wrestled with this chapter for such a long time. I needed them to talk to each other. I could not imagine the Buddha arrives, takes his son and leaves. There had to have been some kind of a conversation. And so I have him going to the room. She falls at the feet sobbing. 
But then they have to have the conversation. It can't just end with her crying at his feet. It doesn't make any sense. So I have them having that conversation in her room. And I rewrote that chapter a million times. I could not imagine how that conversation went. And I didn't have anyone to guide me. I had no, none of the other poets or writers told me how the story went. So I really had to imagine it for myself. And I struggled so much because every time I wrote it, he looked like such a jerk. He was taking her son. Like it just didn't work. So I needed magic intervention. (laughs) And one of the most wonderful things about Indian storytelling, and you must know this with all of the work that you do and with theater and everything else, these stories are always magical. And there's always divine intervention and gods floating in and swans swooping and jewels falling from the sky. I mean, it's just beautiful, magical, full of imagination, playful, right? It's Leela all the time. And so I thought, well, the Buddha does Leela all the time. He plays. And he plays with reality and shifts reality to make a point. And so I thought, okay, we're going to have to leave the bedroom and have something playful happen because there's no other way this conversation makes sense. And so I have them step out the balcony and off a window right onto a cloud and they float away and they have their conversation on a cloud because I couldn't understand how else this conversation was going to work. And I thought that portion of the book was particularly gripping. That seized my imagination. And it seems to me that you've also contributed something else important. And you can correct me if I'm not quite getting this right, but it seems to me that this is a moment in which she has a kind of pre-enlightenment. Yeah. I mean, he gets enlightened by himself. We, We covered that in our conversation a minute ago, but maybe not entirely in your narrative. Oh, it's definitely part of her growing experience and of her learning to let go and of learning to make peace and of also allowing the world is vaster than she understands. And so by being out in the sky, it's the boundaries are gone and it's a freeing moment for her and for him. And they can have a conversation that I don't think would have made sense on the ground because the Buddha is no longer married. The Buddha doesn't have a wife and yet the relationship is still important. So it's, I needed them to be free of the limitations of all of that. And then they could both experience things in a different way. Yeah, it's definitely made up, but it's definitely inspired by the playfulness and the magical qualities of Indian storytelling. Was there some moment at which in your professional life you were sitting around and you thought, I've got to write this story from Yashodara's perspective? I have a good friend in the academy that like we partner up on a lot of things and she watched me (laughs) go through a kind of internal torture for a long time about that question. And I've talked about it quite a few times that it, it was a really big decision for me to make it into a novel. The Buddhist Studies Academy is a very conservative place. The field of Buddhist studies is more conservative than most fields in the academy. We are, I think, quite behind on other disciplines in terms of still a bit of an old boys club. The rules are still pretty strict. It's hard to get into, hard to be accepted, very easy to be pushed out. It's a very particular world, this academic world of Buddhist studies. So I was quite nervous about breaking the rules or the perceived rules that I imagined were around me. But I needed to do something different. I had spent 20 years of my life writing in a very particular way, following the rules, learning a lot from it, developing a craft that I'm very proud of. But it's a particular formula to write as an academic. I was losing my creative voice. I didn't know where it was. I didn't know... I needed to find it. So I felt like I had gotten very good at following rules. And I needed to break open a little bit, but I was very worried about what this would do to my academic standing, my relationships in the academy. I was very worried about it for a long time, but I 
really didn't want to write like that for this. When I read the Buddha Charity, when I read some of this poetry, it's so beautiful. And these poets took on her voice. They spoke for her and they spoke for the Buddha and they spoke for the king and they allowed themselves to create scenes the way I allowed myself to create scenes. Like everything I did, I took license from them. And I just thought I have to continue. I have to, I want to try what they do. I don't want to describe what they do. I want to try it. And so one of the things that I write about in the introduction is that it's like, I felt like I was a dance critic, but I never danced, right? I I felt like I'm always standing on the outside watching dancers. And I just thought, okay, even if I'm not a good dancer, I just want to try it. I want to write like they do. So I wanted to climb in. I wanted to participate. I didn't want to stand on the outside. What has come across over the years since I started this project was I never had to be an either or that good scholarship is creative. But I think for a while, I thought it was an either or, and I was very frightened of changing course. And a scholar that I look up to very much recently said to me, you created a new kind of scholarship. And I was very, very moved by that. He said, you're doing scholarship by taking on the voice because you're seeing it from a different angle. And that was a relief. Very, very grateful for that. And also taught me a lot that that scholarship has to be creative and that creativity has to be well-informed that maybe we don't have to be so separated all the time. Was it principally a desire to get Yasodara's voice into the narrative, or was it principally a desire to rearrange or recreate your scholarly life that led to this book? I don't think I was consciously rearranging my scholarly life. I think I realized I did that after. I just wanted to try what Ashvagosha did. (laughs) I didn't want to be a critic anymore. I wanted to be dancing on the stage. And I wanted to feel what it was like. And I just kept thinking, even if I'm terrible at it, dancers are allowed to dance. (laughs) You know, like you don't have to be a great dancer to dance. And so I don't have to ever apologize for not being a beautiful writer like Ashvagosha. That's not the issue. I want to participate. Do you have an inclination to write in verse? No, (laughs) I'm terrible at that. (laughs) Well, but you just said you don't have to be a great dancer to dance. Write terrible verse. Why not? (laughs) that's never been my inclination (laughs) but I want to try to do my own kind of dance certainly I understand that you're writing a sequel to this book already yes it's mostly done but it needs work so the first draft is complete and now this summer I'll try to fix it and adjust it and then try to get it published which is its own project it's much more difficult to get this kind of writing published than academic writing published but uh, hopefully it'll get published soon Well, I am looking forward to the sequel, but I don't want to leave this book quite yet. Returning to this topic of scholarship, how much of what appears in your version of the story could be called historical, with maybe a capital H? Very little. (laughs) I I don't know that any of it is historical, and I'm not going to try to claim that it is. I think we can very well hope the Buddha is a historical character. But which part of his story is or isn't historical, I'm not getting into those arguments. And the likelihood that even if he did exist as a person, he existed as any of these poets imagined, the gap is tremendous. So it's really neither here nor there if any of it is historical. So one of the things I say in my introduction is that it's not historical fiction, but I call it hagiographical fiction. 
And what I mean by that is what I've done is I've collected all these hagiographies. A hagiography is a sacred retelling, a biography told from a sacred perspective. And so all of these religious narratives of the Buddha, all of these biographies that we have for the last 2000 years, these are hagiographies. And this is built on those stories, not built on history. So I'm building a story that's built on other stories. Whether those other stories are built on history, I will let the archaeologists figure out. <laughs> Does the body of material that you've cited itself make claims to being historical? Or is this all kind of openly and a, a creative effort going all the way back to Ashwagosa or whoever? I don't know. Certainly not the stuff that I use is claiming for any kind of absolute historicity. Most of the stuff that is written starts about 2,000 years ago, not 2,500 years ago. So if the Buddha existed, we're looking at, you know, about 25, 2,400 years ago. So we're off by a few hundred years before the first stories really make it to the page. Doesn't mean that they're not true stories. Oral traditions are usually more reliant than we would expect. But I don't know how you track that in any kind of significant way. So I, I'm not busying myself with those kind of worries. I love the stories. I love that they've been told. I think they are sacred because they are told, not because they're historically true. And I think that's important. So the, the narrative that you give us, I didn't actually try to do the math for this, but more than 90% is told in the first person. Yes. There are some little scenes that aren't through Yasodara's eyes. Why inject those when the bulk of the story is this first-person narrative? Well, it's such a cool literary question that you're asking. <laughs> Very few people ever noticed that. I wouldn't have done that 20 years ago, but I read novels constantly now in a way that I didn't before, which is a really fun kind of side consequence of having written this book as I am just fascinated by any, like, you know, as academics, we don't always have time to read fiction. And now I read fiction constantly. Every mm. single morning, it's like my religion is every morning starts with a good hour of reading fiction. And I love it. And I have read so much in the last couple of years that I didn't read before. And I've been amazed to see all the different styles that contemporary writers allow themselves to play with so that the rules seem to have gone out the window. <laughs> so all the kind of classical rules of 19th century, early 20th century writing, where there were very fixed modes and voices that had to be chosen, all of that's kind of gone. And people change voices and go from third person omniscient to first person to third person somebody else to another first person. I mean, there's just so much play that is happening in people's writing now. The only thing that's been consistent is that the reader needs to be able to understand who's talking. And so you can't confuse the reader with it. So you have to make sure there's a clear break between one voice and the other. But beyond that, the rules are gone. And when I realize that, when the story requires that I need to tell another piece of the story and she's not there for it, then I'll just do it in third person. I would never have done that 20 years ago. <laughs> but I think literature has changed and evolved so much. The reader also expects these kinds of plays that you know, a 19th century reader would have been shocked by. So I think we have a lot of space now as writers and playwrights and whatever else to play with voices in ways that we couldn't before. It kind of sounds to me like these few shifts that you make into third person or otherwise in, in, in the book weren't part of your plan originally. No, I just stepped, did it. Stepped into them because why? Like the story asked for it or what? The story needed it and I decided I was allowed. <laughs> this, I mean, like this whole process has been me just deciding I'm allowed. <laughs> so it's just, okay, let's try this. And it's, it's funny because I think, you know, maybe artists generally do feel this way, but when you're trained as an academic, the rules are so clear 
all the time. It's a huge existential shift every time you go, am I allowed to do that? Am Mm. I allowed to go there? Am I allowed to say this? So it was a constant pushing of boundaries for myself that maybe other people wouldn't feel, but that I was constantly negotiating. One of the bits that steps out of Yasodara's own voice, there are a couple of scenes with the four gods. Oh, they were fun. But who are they? They're so fun. (laughs) They're there, though. They're part of the tradition. There are these four guardian deities. They're all over Buddhism. You get them from, you know, Sri Lanka to Tibet and everywhere in between. And in all the texts is these guardian gods that are there almost like puppet masters to make sure that the Buddha gets what he needs to continue on his journey. So that you have this sense of his cosmic role, that it's not just him as an individual human, but that he's playing a cosmic role. And the cosmos is engaged and participating, and they need to make sure he gets to the finish line. So if he gets distracted, they are going to make sure they move the story to get him to where he needs to go. So I had to include them. They seemed really important players in the story. Just made them a bit sillier than they, <laughs> they, are fun. they tend to be. They are absolutely fun. They they kind of leap out of the book surprisingly as you're as you're going through pages, or at least the way I went through pages all of a sudden. I had then fun the, with them. Then the fun characters are suddenly dancing, to borrow your metaphor, on, on, on the page. But these four figures, they're projected backwards, aren't they, by, by the lore? I mean, I'm trying to get to what the world of 2,500 years ago might have looked like. I mean, what do you mean? As well as you point out, the the historicity of the Buddha himself is is generously described as questionable. Right. But if we place the Buddha at twenty five hundred years ago, what is the world that he's that he's living in? What is the world? I mean, we shouldn't center, you know, the Buddha here in this conversation. What is the world that Yasodhara is living in? What does that look like? And does the religious life at that time include figures like these four gods? I would think so. I mean, maybe not these specific four gods, but I think the world of India 2,500 years ago and 2,000 years ago and later is a world that has a very active cosmos, a world that is much bigger than just the seen realm, right? And so you have in a lot of Buddhist lore, you have the division between the seen and the unseen. And so the seen realm is us and animals. But then there's the unseen realm. And the unseen realm is ghosts and gods and hell beings and, you know, tree spirits and guardian deities and all kinds of stuff. And every book you read, every text you look at from 20, you know, 2000 years ago onwards has all of this magical stuff in it. And these gods interact with the Buddha and they converse with him and they participate and they're just actors in the universe. The universe would have made no sense to almost anyone without them. And so it's not just the gods who are helping the Buddha, but I include goddesses throughout the book that are interacting with Yashodara because I think she would have been in a world where those goddesses would have been real. And they may or may not be the goddesses as we understand them of contemporary Hinduism, but it doesn't matter. It's just this notion that there are actors in the universe that are not seen but are somehow still seen and engaged with. And I think these are real parts of the Indian imagination. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Rig Veda. I mean, we we have these characters always. They change name, they change function, but the universe is, is filled, it's bursting with unseen realms of powers and forces and agents. How could you tell a story without them participating? And Durga certainly features prominently in, in the narrative. Yasodara herself is fairly consistently reflecting on, on how Durga would have handled this situation or that situation. 
But there's another, there's another figure who shows up, Serponica. I had a feeling that given your field that you were going to ask about that. <laughs> you clearly intended that the reader couldn't ignore Serponica when she shows up. Well, how could you ignore her? Well, indeed. So tell us who is Serponica and why does she feature the way that she does in this story that you're telling? So this whole scene where Surpanaka shows up is a scene that I had made up, and it's trying to set the stage of imagining the Buddha and Yashoda as a young couple, and what would they have been doing? I couldn't imagine it. There's very little discussion in the sources of how they lived. We just get these clips of moments. And so I imagine one of the things that they must have done is watched plays, because this is one of the most important things that you do in India, is you sit in, and the plays can go on for days and days and days, really long storytelling, because people had time. And so they would take the time to tell stories, and it's something that we don't have much time for. I mean, during the pandemic, we do, but <laughs> normally we're quite rushed. So I tried to create a scene where they, days and days of engaging in a play, listening to a play and being touched by it and having their imaginations spirited away by this story. And the story is a story that threads itself right through the book. And it's the story of the Ramayana, which is one of the most important stories of Indian storytelling that I think has a lot of echoes to the Buddha's story. So that story just keeps coming up. But there is a woman who experiences loss in that story. And she's often vilified. And I thought that that was an interesting parallel with Yashodara, who's not vilified, but she's just ignored. And so it just seemed like an obvious thing for her, this character for her to be drawn to, this female character in the Ramayana who is vilified, but maybe she's been misunderstood. She's vilified. Why? And how does the, the story that you wrote suggest that she's misunderstood? So just like with the Buddha's biography, there are so many versions of it. So with the Ramayana, there are so many versions of the story. The most common, the North Indian tradition, is that she is vilified because she attacks Ram, right? And so we have Lord Rama, who is the great king, the just, the honorable, the most amazing hero of the Ramayana. And she's going to pounce on him. And so Lakshmana stops her. She's this demoness who's trying to seduce him and Lakshmana protects him and stops her and kills her, or he attacks her. But in the South Indian tradition, there's a version of the Ramayana where the reason she, I mean, she's attracted to Ram, but Rama makes fun of her and teases her and rebuffs her. And then she goes between one brother and the next, and they're basically making fun of her going, oh, you go to my brother, he'll like you. Oh, you go to my brother, he'll like you. And it's so insulting. And this poor Okay, granted, she's an ogress, but <laughs> in this moment, she's a beautiful female. She doesn't look like an ogress. And she's being taunted and teased and humiliated. And then when she gets upset and jumps at Rama, Lakshmana chops off her breasts and chops off her nose. And it's just humiliating. Then she shrieks, you know, runs away crying. And this is the start of the war between the demons and Rama. And so she's really the catalyst of everything. And what I did in the book was I made her story feature and her sadness be the feature. And so instead of being angry at Supanaka for being this horrible ogress that ruins everything, the story that they get is the South Indian version where maybe she's been, maybe Ram is somewhat responsible for what's happened here. And why is that reading of Supanaka important for how we understand Yashodara's story? Well, maybe the Buddha is a little responsible for her loss. <laughs> right? I mean, it just seems like such an obvious parallel to me, and it seems like an obvious thing for Yashodara to be moved by. Now, to be fair, I never really took this version of the Ramayana to heart until I heard David Shulman give a presentation. 
he's somebody I've known for many years, but one day I went to hear him speak. And when I heard him speak publicly, instead of talking to him privately, he really is extraordinary. And when he presented Surpanika's story in that way, he made her so alive to me and I just felt so bad for Surpana. So it's all David's fault. Um, and <laughs> the way he presented it was so beautiful and so moving and his love of theater is so poignant in the way that he expresses himself. I went home and wrote the scene. And in my notes, I credit him with the scene that I would never have been able to write it the way I did if it wasn't for him awakening my imagination. And that feels like an oral tradition to me right? That as scholars and thinkers and storytellers, we influence each other and the story keeps evolving. And so the story of the Ramayana evolved for me and therefore evolved in this book. And then, you know, maybe Surpanika will become a great heroine in the future and people will only know her this way. Mm. <laughs> you know, the story will change. There's another interesting element in the story that you've told that recurs in a number of different forms, a number of different times across the story, and that is trees. There are a number of important trees Yes, you can't do Buddhism without a tree. <laughs> okay. But there are several different trees that you give us. Maybe you can tell us which trees are they that show up in this story, and why did you choose those trees? Well, some of the trees I made up. Some of the trees are the trees of the tradition. But first of all, you can't go to South Asia and not end up hugging a tree at some point. Just like the unseen realm is a big part of the Indian imagination, so within the seen realm, there are agents and forces that are there beyond just animals and humans. And so there is life and agency in trees. You have them in certain rocks, like the, the natural world, mountains, rivers, the natural world is also alive and has its own stories to tell. And they become actors in the cosmic story as well. So we really lose a lot when we just focus on the human characters. And you go to India and it takes you five seconds and you bump into a sacred tree. Like it's not, they're everywhere. <laughs> and it's not just India. Like everywhere I've been in Asia, there, there are trees in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, everywhere. Beautiful trees that are honored for properties that are specific to a tree or to a story of something that happened at the foot of a tree. They just all have different stories. And sometimes people know what the lore is. So you'll ask somebody, why is this tree being honored and somebody will tell you, oh, you know, X, Y, or Z happened. And other times people say, I don't know, it's been honored since my grandmother's time. Nobody remembers the story, <laughs> but they keep honoring it. And then other trees are just trees and nobody's honoring them at all. But the notion of having a sacred tree is really, really common. And the trees in Buddhist storytelling is really common. So that the Buddha at each moment in his life in classical texts, usually all of his major scenes happen at trees. And they're different trees. So he's born under a specific tree. He practices asceticism under a specific tree. He achieves awakening under another tree. He gives his first sermon under another tree. So, And they're all different trees, but somehow each one is important. And so I had to have some trees in the story that were also characters to the story. There's one tree that's particularly important to Yasodhara, at least the way that I read the story, and that's the big tree that's in the palace courtyard. Yeah. That also wears a mask. Yeah. And seems to be female. Yes. Trees are often female. So tree worship tends to be associated with women in South Asia. You tend to find that women are the one. Now, men also will worship trees, but tree worship seems to be a kind of tradition that is very strongly associated with fertility and with women. There are some trees that are associated with ancestors and with death, but most of them you'll find often women are the ones that are kind of caring for the tradition. 
the tree with the mask, I have to credit another scholar because that whole tree I made up Hmm. and was based on my needing to create an important tree and collecting all of this information. And so there's a wonderful scholar called David Haberman who works on trees. And he's just finished a book on rocks. <laughs> I haven't hmm. read yet. I'm very excited to read that book. And I think he's now working on mountains. But he focuses his scholarship on trying to understand these relationships with the natural environment. His research is wonderful. And so when I read his book on trees, and he calls it his book, People Trees, which I just, I thought was such a perfect title for a book, because they are very much people. He describes a tradition that I had never heard of before. It's prominent in Varanasi, where to really connect the person to a tree. Sometimes people put up a mask so that you can feel like the tree's looking at you through eyes. And that tradition touched me so much that I had to include it in the book. And I wrote to him as soon as I finished that scene, I said, your book made me write this. <laughs> One of the great pleasures is being able to credit all of these wonderful thinkers who have taught me so much to help me create a world that, you know, I have the early literature and then I have all of this scholarship and together, all of this research helps me write this book. It's a great pleasure to honor all the people who helped me do that. That kind of brings us back to one of the quirky scholarly elements of this book. You mentioned that you got rid of all the footnotes, which is yes. a quirky scholarly move. Yeah, they're all gone. <laughs> right. You also have study questions at the end. Yes. Which you don't generally get when you pick up a, a novel, even a historical novel. It's not like, you know, if you pick up James Michener or something, you find a bunch of study questions at the end. What was your motivation in... Uh, in giving your readers study questions. Oh, that's not really my idea. Oh. <laughs> it was something the publishers thought would be a good idea. Oh. It's not something that I ever imagined doing, but they're hoping that this book makes it to classrooms. Uh, mm. And it has, actually. This book mm. gets used a lot now for introductory courses on Buddhism or Buddhism and gender. Oh, lovely. It's turned into, and none of this is what I really foresaw, but it becomes a playful way for students to get to know the tradition without having to study a textbook. So they can learn the story and they can learn some of the important principles and get a sense of this cosmos, which is so important, so that it's not just Buddhism is all about Four Noble Truths, but that they get a feel for the stories, which I'm starting to feel is almost more important than the doctrine. I feel like it's a more holistic and through that you understand suffering and impermanence and everything else, but the stories are maybe an easier way for us to engage. And so in the hopes that it does make it to classrooms, they thought maybe study questions would be useful. And I have a bunch of colleagues who are now using it in their intro courses as a way to get students to understand the tradition. Are you using it in your classes? I have used it in one of my classes, but not a Buddhism class. I no. do one course that's on storytelling. So I figure if the students are going to hand over their stories to me, I have to hand over mine to them and oh, they get well, to well critique done. it. I think that's a great idea. So the, the study questions weren't your idea, but you wrote but them? But I wrote them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I wrote them. Was that difficult? It's an odd position to find yourself in. <laughs> Not a natural thing for me to be writing. So I had to scratch my head a little bit. But, you know, in the end, there are questions I would ask. Maybe to wrap up this conversation, let me ask you the last of those study questions. Do you ever feel like abandoning everything and just walking away? Yes. Does Yasudara's story appeal to you for this reason? Yeah, that was the most honest question I ever <laughs> it was at the end of a long day, and I just kind of splurted that one out. Mm. I think I have struggled with that my whole life of mm. the desire, you know, and I think that's probably why Buddhism appeals to me so much is that it is a story of just 
kind of throwing all the responsibilities to the wind and saying, I'm not going to play this game anymore. I don't want to participate in this anymore. I don't want to spend my life chasing all of this stuff. And so, you know, there is definitely a very profound philosophical appeal to throwing away the workload. It's a really easy thing to say at the end of the semester in particular (laughs) when I'm so tired, but at the end of the day, I don't do it. But there's a piece of my psyche that obviously always plays with the question. Do you find Yasodara inspirational? I think she's a survivor. And that's what impresses me about her, is that she goes through a tremendous amount of pain. And she's not broken. And she stands up. And so she falls, and then she falls again. And things are taken away from her without her agency, without her voice, without any say, which is how life goes. Life just comes in and does stuff to you, <laughs> mm. right? The pandemic came and took away all kinds of stuff and we're not in control of any of it. Life just does what it does and we have to adjust. And she doesn't break. She dusts herself off. She stands up. She raises her son. She falls again, loses her son, dusts herself off and she gets up again and she keeps walking. And I think... That's what I really want. So the running away is a fantasy. What I want is to be like her. Resilient. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Vanessa R. Sasson is the author of Yashodara and the Buddha, which is published in the United States by Bloomsbury Academic. Dave Mason was your interviewer today. And for Book Talk, I'm Stephen Usry. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.